Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Tizier, and I'm joined again today by Joe Annity and Austin Pine. Good to be in here again with you guys and doing another episode. Yeah, stoked to be here. Glad to be back. Yeah, the topic is going to be great today. Today we're going to be talking about Calvinism. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Actually, and this is going to be the first episode of what will most likely be probably about seven, seven episodes maybe or more on Calvinism. So, Joe, why seven episodes on Calvinism? Why not more? Well, it pro- you know, knowing us, it probably will end up being more. I don't know. Uh, seven is what we have it mapped out as. But, you know, people know that about us, that, that we're Calvinists. I think most people know that about um about us at MAS Christian Fellowship, and um, I think people have questions about what that means. I think I know this that people have a lot of misconceptions uh, concerning what Calvinism is, and so I think it's a good, I think it's a good time to address some of those things. Um, you know, I've actually stayed r- relatively quiet uh, concerning Calvinism in the first few years of Emmaus Christian Fellowship, actually. Yeah. I, I think, if I remember right, we offered a class on the doctrine of salvation um, from the get-go. Uh, we encouraged our people to come to it, and we obviously needed to do that because it was such a hot topic uh, with us at the beginning. Uh, but we moved beyond that, and I was very deliberate to go on to other things um, and, to, and to not you know, explicitly talk about Calvinism. It would come up from time to time, of course. But, but the reason is that... Um, I was nervous that we would become one of those churches that was like obsessed with, you know, one thing. Yeah, have a hobby horse. Yeah, a hobby horse mentality. Uh, some people call it a cage phase uh, <laughs> when it comes to, you know, people who are just discover the doctrines of grace and kind of get so excited about it that they just obsess over it, you know. And I really didn't want that for Emmaus Christian Fellowship. So um, we, we, didn't, we didn't hone in upon it uh, too much in our first few years, but over the last year or so I've begun to, talk about it more and more uh, because I think our church is more mature and, and just has a good solid foundation and, and we're at a good place to where we can talk about it without obsessing over it. So um, that's why I, you know, I want to spend some time bringing some clarity uh, on this topic. Also, of course, I do want to persuade others to believe these things. Uh, that is a hope that if we um, explain these things well and from the scriptures that others will, will see them and, and go, yeah, this is biblical and this is true. Um, I, I do want to make this point from the outset that um, these doctrines that we call Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, uh, which we'll get into, are very, very practical. You know, th- they're presented in the scriptures as a comfort to the people of God. I mean, I know yeah, that um, absolutely th- they're oftentimes the source of contention and controversy, which is tragic. Uh, but the doctrine of predestination or election. It's presented in the scriptures in order to comfort the people of God, you know, in in their salvation in Christ Jesus. And and so I want to talk about these things in order to um, bless the people of God. And I think the last thing I want to say about why seven parts, um, it's because these doctrines do need to be handled with a great deal of care. Um, I mean, a, a lot of times, you know, people will, this topic will come up and you'll have just a few minutes to discuss it. I mean, honestly, these things are so deep, it's very difficult to talk about these things well in just a few minutes. And so, you know, this is a great forum for us to step back and to take our time, seven episodes, maybe more, 
and to give a really careful consideration of these things. And, um, you know, our own confession, which uh, makes much of these doctrines, uh, points this out that we need to handle these things with care. So the London Baptist Confession, chapter 3, verse 7, says that this doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or, or effectual calling be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all the sincere, uh, to all that sincerely obey uh, the gospel. So I, th- I think that's a beautiful statement concerning the doctrine of predestination. Handle it with care so that the end result would be that those who are in Christ would be assured and comforted and, and spurred on in humility in the Christian faith. And uh, so that's my response to why why uh, why seven episodes there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree. So um, well, let's jump into then a, just a, let's go over a definition of just generally what is Calvinism. Well, there's a <clears throat> can of worms right there. I mean, uh, there's a lot of ways you could come at this, um, but I think it's also good to first you know point out maybe some of the things that it's not right because, um, like we said, there are a lot of misconceptions, and uh, so I mean I think first off it's it's not an all out devotion to the teachings of John Calvin. Um, although, you know, I myself would consider myself a fan of his writings and, um, the teaching that he put forth, it's not that we, uh, just all out fall at his knee or on our knees at, you know, his feet and submit to everything that he said. Um, you know, as, as Reformed Baptists, we consider a lot of what he said very legitimate and very helpful and true. Uh, but we do find points of contention that I think are totally fine to disagree with him on. Um, but Really, there's there's five points within Calvinism that um, come from or are more of a summary of the Canons of Dort, which was a council that met in uh, 1618, 1619. So there's you know the period of Reformation comes about, and um, there's a lot of new thought, and people are breaking away from the Catholic Church and uh, re-understanding salvation, re-understanding the uh, doctrine of salvation, and so. Um, yeah, there's a lot that we could get into, but really there's there was um, kind of a sect or a group that was coming uh, against this uh, Reformation movement, and they're um, coming forth uh, under the teachings of Arminius, Jacob Arminius, right? And so there were five points of the Remonstrance um, that were very heretical, and I think that all of us would easily agree that the um, the five original points of the Arminians were um, absolutely, you know, contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And so uh, what the canons of Dort did was respond to the five points of the Arminians, uh, the remonstrant Arminianism. And so what, you know, was put forth as the five points of Calvinism summed up in what most of us know as the TULIP acronym, um, yeah, they weren't just kind of created out of thin air, but they were very much a response and a retort to uh, this heresy that was coming around and um, mm-hmm. spreading pretty quickly. So you want to... Right. I, you know, we often talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism. I think it is important to say from the beginning that there are very few uh, true and true Arminians 
around today. Absolutely, there, there, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of a lot of non-Calvinists, you know, people who are uh, anti-Calvinists. Uh, there's a lot of I don't know one, two, three, four point Calvinists, whatever they like to call themselves. But there are very few uh, true-blooded Arminians. Uh, his teaching, I, I think, um, a lot of Christians, most Christians would probably agree, was was uh, was off. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. quite right. And so you're right to say that the Canons of Dort were a response to that, and the Five Points of Calvinism were a, a, a good and succinct summary of the Canons of Dort. I've encouraged it before. It, the Canons of Dort would be a wonderful thing for people to read. You can find them online um, quite easily. Uh, that's Dort, D-O-R-T. Um, yeah, but read them, and then and then you'll see that the TULIP acronym just brings um, all that is communicated there into a, a succinct summary. Um, I, I think ultimately what Calvinism is is a good and faithful summary of what the Bible has to say about how salvation works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. th- that's my yeah. belief. We, we are Calvinists. Um, we wear that label because we believe that Calvinism is true to Scripture. Um, the Reformation period, and the reason we call ourselves Reformed Baptists is we be, because the, the, the core principle of the Reformation was sola scriptura. We've talked about that in the past, you know, that what the Reformation did was say the scriptures alone are are authority for truth. And so that's why we're Reformed. And the reason that we call ourselves Calvinists is because we think that uh, what has become known as Calvinism is a wonderful summary of what the Bible has to say about how salvation, how salvation works. Yeah, I think think some people get kind of afraid maybe to call themselves Calvinists right in that sense and take taking the label on themselves can be kind of a um i don't know just daunting thing to do right they they maybe not uh have those misconceptions that we're talking about or they maybe just don't have a clear understanding of um all that calvinism may entail and so um yeah i think it's good for us here to address those misconceptions and address what calvinism actually teaches or mm-hmm. the calvinistic understanding of salvation like we're saying is uh true and biblical and and sure so Mm -hmm. yeah it's a very important topic that i think the church should endeavor in right i think i think one of the problems is people just aren't educated in or aren't well read into this and so um yeah why else might might this be an important topic though you guys well i mean the doctrine of salvation is obviously important i mean if we think of the message message of scripture one of the primary things that Scripture reveals to us is how it is that man can be saved. I mean, it's it's a central theme. I think the Scriptures reveal a lot to us about who God is and who man is, but the message of Scripture is the message of redemption. And so obviously we should be um, very much concerned to, to understand this uh, to the best of our ability. What does the Bible have to say about the doctrine of salvation? But I think Calvinism, this topic also has a way of bringing out essential truths concerning who God is and also essential truths concerning who we are as human beings. You'll find that as we talk about these doctrines, that I mean, that's always, um, you know, a, a central focus. We're asking the question, who is God and how does he relate to the world that he created? How does he relate to us? And, and man, what is his condition like? What is our need? What is our capacity? What is our ability? Mm-hmm. And um, the scriptures are very much concerned to uh, communicate truth concerning these things. And, and so there are these very big worldview issues at stake here. And, and for me, it, it, it's very important to notice that really our, our understanding of Scripture is affected um, Absolutely. by the way we um, see these doctrines. Actually, I think it would be better to state it the other way. 
um, we, we come to our conclusion concerning these doctrines, the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, uh, based upon how it is that we view Scripture. I remember when this uh, controversy um, started to arise, you know, in, in my, in my uh, personal uh, life history, um, you know, yes, I was concerned to get the doctrine of salvation right, but there was something more fundamental uh, in the back of my mind, you know, that is that um, as I began to engage with this topic, I began to see that, you know what, really this is a question of what is our authority for truth? What is our authority mm-hmm. for truth? And, and um, if we say that the Word of God alone is our authority for truth, then I'm going to go in a particular direction when it comes to the topic of Calvinism or Arminianism. Um, but if I'm willing to say that human, unaided human reason is authoritative or that my emotions are authoritative, then I would probably go in a different direction. Or if I were willing to look at common grace, um, uh, general revelation um, th- through the created world in a certain way, then I might go in a different direction. So for me, it was just, I don't know, it... it this particular topic, this particular doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, uh, served as kind of a pivot point for me. That I'm going, yeah, the doctrine itself is important, but it affects so many other things in the Christian life, and, and it affects sure. the way that we view yeah. truth just in general. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think about wearing the label Calvinist? I used to try to avoid the label um, because I, I knew – that if someone came up to me and they said, hey, are you a Calvinist? If I said yes, you, you know, it was kind of like game over. <laughs> uh, that was the end of the conversation. You know, I'd, I'd be saying yes, not only to what I thought they meant, but also to everything that they actually meant by. <laughs> well, and that's the key, though, what what they think it is. And then there's a lot of misconceptions, right, to what Calvinism means. And that's the, that's mm-hmm. the problem. Right. And, and so I would try to avoid the label as long as I could and, and just deal with, you know, substantial questions and. I have a conversation over a long period of time or whatever, but and maybe it's just me and, and my position and our past. I just, I've given up on trying to avoid the label. <laughs> Actually, I regret trying to avoid it early on. I think the better approach is just to say, yeah, I'm a Calvinist. Let me help you understand what I mean by that. You know, yeah. let's talk. Right. Let's Absolutely. clarify terms. Let's right. clarify terminology. Yeah. People say, oh, I don't like labels. Well, labels are actually very helpful. I mean, if you think about it, that's how human language works. We we use words to communicate concepts that are bigger than the word themselves. You know, we do that with language all the time. Uh, we do that with other things. If people want to know something about your political view, they might ask, "Are you are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you a Libertarian?" Or something like that. You know, and it, it's just helpful. I mean, instead of having to take hours to explain all of your views on politics you know you can kind of sum things up in one word yeah and then go on from there mm-hmm. to clarify what you mean by that sure that one particular word so i don't know what about you guys i'm just that's not so much an issue for me anymore i'm i'm okay with wearing the label calvinist as long as i have an opportunity to express what that means i think it's it's been a challenge for me too just a more just me nervous to say it just because I don't want to be written off right away. Just, I, I, you know, I went to school at, at Vanguard university and, um, it doesn't really have a specific, I mean, it does, but 
as a student there, I didn't know what I was or what I believed. Or, you know, um, I wasn't a Calvinist then or even know what knew what that was at the time. But seeing friends now that I still have from that school, I want to expose them to this. But I know that if I use the term Calvinism, they're, they, they're going to think it's ignorant or they won't even give it a chance because they have in their mind something that a professor said to them about it instead of, uh, you know, what I've been exposed to as I've read through scripture, as I've been presented these different right. things. So, but at the same time, you know, I want, you know, as you were saying, I want that conversation to come up. I want to bring that mm-hmm. forward because, um, I want them to, to be able to at least, uh, be exposed to it and well, I work through think, it. Yeah. I kind of think of it in the same terms of, um, I went through a hard, kind of a rough patch uh, when I was, I think, in high school, uh, just calling myself a Christian, right? Or, or, or are you a Christian or do you consider yourself spiritual or whatever it is? Because uh, labels have connotations, right? And so Christians in American culture are known to be hypocritical, right? They're known to be uh, maybe self-righteous or, you know, there's so many different things that people conjure up in their minds. Um, and so, yeah, labels carry certain baggage with them uh, and, and the th- same thing is true for Calvinism or Calvinists uh, but at the same time I think that it's only harmful to walk away from those and, and give up those terms that sure. um, maybe we should reclaim and redefine or help people to come to a better understanding of what those things are because no Christians aren't hypocritical Christians are people right human that struggle with sin and uh, the difference is that we repent of our sin and we learn right. to struggle with it uh, in a godly fashion. And yeah, Calvinists, we might believe heavily in the sovereignty of God, but that does not negate our uh, free choice that we make uh, in in you know right context mm-hmm. being understood. Um, and so I think it's yeah, it's it's hard for us maybe to come to grips with what past. Calvinists or past Christians have um, tarnished or done to the to the name, uh, but by no means. So I think we should walk away from it or give that label up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Honestly, like if folks decide they don't want to wear the label, I wouldn't I wouldn't judge them for it, you know, because who knows what context they're ministering in. I, right. You would agree with me, Austin, on this. I would be much more troubled as a pastor if someone was unwilling to name the name Christian, you know. Right. Uh, Absolutely. A, yeah. I, I know that's not what yeah. you were saying, but. Um, you know, there are good reasons to maybe avoid the label. I've heard some people say, well, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm an Augustinian. Have you heard that before? And, <laughs> I have heard that. Uh, yeah. You know, St. Augustine uh, being known for uh, his careful articulation of the doctrine of predestination too, and his view of the sovereignty of God. So whatever you want to do there, I guess, is fine. But it's really the substance or the content that matters exactly in terms of what you, of what you uh, believe. I think I, avoiding it for a time being in order to get the point across of what, what it mm-hmm. does mean and then bringing it back to... to maybe yeah. redefine those terms could be helpful to you. So. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you guys is to share a little bit about how it was that you uh, became uh, Calvinist. I've heard it said before that everyone, every Christian is by default an Arminian. You've heard that said before? Yeah. I, <laughs> I think have. there's some truth, some truth that, or at least every Christian is by default a semi-Pelagian. Maybe we'll get to some of these terms before, but I, I think the point of it is, is that Christians usually assume from the beginning that it was they who chose Christ, you know, because that's what we experience. Like we, that's, that's what we experience. That's what we know to be true. We heard the gospel and then we respond in faith 
and we receive Christ and make him Lord and we repent all of this. So we experience that. And, and so it's not, you know, it's not a surprise that that's what we are by default, assuming that that's all there is to the story. You know, I heard the gospel and I chose Christ. Mm-hmm. But it's only through the study of scripture and through discipleship that we begin to learn that there's actually more to the story, that the reason we chose Christ is because he chose us. You know, it's like that hymn. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. One of my favorite hymns. Yeah, we were talking about that a while ago. So, which we're actually going to start singing in uh, in service pretty soon. But yeah. Um, So I I know that's true of all three of us that we kind of had that, uh, that default understanding of things. I guess if you're raised in a reformed home and you're catechized from a young age, maybe (laughs) it's not true, but, but for those of us who, or for those who came to faith later in life or who grew up in a, you know, broadly evangelical or even Arminian, we'll use the term Arminian very loosely here, but more of an Arminian sort of context that, you know, that's our default um, understanding of things. So what about you guys? How did you come to uh, believe in the doctrines of grace? Honestly, it was for me uh, not until I really got to Moody, um, so my college years that I uh, was exposed to it. And and Moody was good because they're, you know, they're uh, Calvinist leaning, but there's in kind of an openness within the the faculty and the professors that, you know, people call themselves three point, four point, whatever, uh, within kind of the Calvinistic spectrum. Uh, but it was there that I was exposed to, uh, I think, just the the literature of it the the scriptural principles of it um and so it became very qu- very clear very quickly that uh there was something more going on in salvation than the way i had for so long so narrowly understood it i guess uh, to put it and yeah just scripture was very much uh a large instrument in in understanding this it wasn't until much later that i even started to read anything that Calvin ever said, but, um, just understanding what the new Testament and, and even the old Testament and the principles that it puts forth, uh, in regards to our salvation, it, it just, yeah, it's, it's everywhere riddled with this, um, this understanding. So Moody was very influential for me in that. Hmm. I'm realizing that we're sitting here talking about 1.2.5 point Calvinism and all of this, and we haven't really defined it, you know, according, yeah. we've mentioned the uh, five yeah, points, but I mean, just to to put it in summary form, uh, TULIP, the acronym TULIP, um, represents these truths that man is totally depraved. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means that he's um, utterly fallen and sinful. Not as sinful as he could be. You know, I think God by his common grace restrains sin in the world and he restrains sin in us. Uh, Even those who aren't in Christ uh, receive, you know, a measure of common grace from God in that regard. I think it's also important to say that there are non-Christians who do do good things uh, in a human sort of way, you know, according to human standards. Ultimately, even our good is evil, though, if it's not done to the glory of God. Right. Anyways, I'm getting too far into it. So totally, total depravity is what T stands for. Um, it, it speaks to our inability, that we're not able to come to God or to please God in and of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. U stands for unconditional election. Um, the word unconditional is very important here. It's the idea that God has chosen some for salvation unconditionally, not based upon any merit in the so, individual. So you mean not looking down the quarters of time and seeing that we would do good or be good or right. choose him. Right. It, 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 and and also, even in a more basic <laughs> even in a more basic way, it's not that God chose the best players to be on his team. 
Right. Yeah. You know, it's that um, he actually chose what is weak and foolish and shameful to, uh, you know, that he would pour out his grace upon those and use them for his glory. Okay, so L is limited atonement. I I think um, this is a very important principle that we'll get to eventually, but it's that Christ came to die for the elect. So there's a connection between unconditional election and the atonement that Christ, according to John's gospel, came to lay down his life for the sheep, Mm -hmm. the sheep that he knew and knows and the sheep that were given to him before the foundation of the world. We'll get to that, but it's a very important principle. And, and if I could jump in, this is kind of the, the main point, I think, of contention within right. – even within Reformed churches and circles, people are going to start here and say, well, I don't necessarily, necessarily agree with that, so I'll, I'll call myself a four-point right. Calvinist perhaps That's because, yeah. Yeah. because of the yeah. atonement view, but – I'll say this, a four-point Calvinist is better than a zero-point Calvinist, in my opinion, but I, I think it is a rather inconsistent way of oh, seeing yeah, absolutely. things. But, you know, that, that's the opinion that people have, and, and I can respect that. One of the professors that I respected most at, at my time at Moody when I was working on my MDiv there, he called himself a 4.5 Calvinist, you know, and, and he had his reasons for doing so. But in the end, I, I think it's an inconsistent way of, of viewing the scriptures and uh, this particular theological point. Um, so also I, as we continue on with TULIP, um, it, it um, refers to irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. Um, some people misunderstand that as if it's teaching that God drags people who are otherwise unwilling to salvation. You know? right, right. No, the idea is that God is effective. He effectively woos those whom he has elected from eternity past. He effectively calls them so that we respond in, in true and authentic faith to that call. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 uh, this morning, and that principle is, permeates that, that whole text, you know, mm-hmm. um, that God is effective in, in bringing to salvation those whom he has chosen. And then the last uh, letter in the acronym here is P, and it uh, is used in reference to uh, the truth of, of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. I think both words are helpful. Mm-hmm. Perseverance emphasizes this, that those who are truly saved and who are truly in Christ will persevere to the end. The word preservation emphasizes the other side of the same coin, and that is the fact that it is God who preserves us. God is the one who preserves us. So I think that's a helpful word in there, too, yeah. the, the preservation, just really acknowledging God's um, role in that, right. that he, in fact, does preserve. It's interesting. So God preserves us. That That is one truth communicated in Scripture, but the Scripture's always are exhorting us to persevere, you know, right, run right. the Continue race, on, run the yeah, race, right. press on to the end, you know, um, don't, don't fall short of it. Uh, and, and that is the means that God uses to preserve us is the exhortation of scripture and, 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 and the encouragement that we receive for brothers and sisters in Christ and the Holy Spirit and all of these things. So really quickly, that was just a quick overview of TULIP since we've been talking about the five points of Calvinism. We'll, the idea is that we'll spend an episode on each one of those, you know, and and look at key scripture texts. I'd like to list a lot of scriptures, you know, that, that teach these doctrines, but my idea is that we'll actually hone in upon one or two key texts and spend some time there. So, uh, so that we really marinate in the text of scripture as we're having these conversations. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be good. But for me, I, you know, I I grew up in a, what I would call a broadly evangelical church and the church was very good in a lot of ways, but you know, we definitely didn't get, um, 
you know, a lot of doctrinal teaching, especially um, uh, on, on the five points of Calvinism. Um, it just didn't come up much, um, but I went away to school at Cal Baptist University, and I could remember my sophomore year at Cal Baptist um, in, in one of my theology classes. I think it was a guest speaker. He came in, and he was just dealing with this topic. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know why the professor brought him in to deal with it. I can't remember who he was, but I do remember him laying on the table, you know, on his back, pretending he was dead, you know. And he said beforehand, just, okay, I'm dead. Wake me up. <laughs> you know, call out to me. Uh, and, and he just laid there to make the point that if a person is dead, there's nothing that that person, the dead person, can do to live. And there's nothing that anyone else can do to make them live. There has to be something supernatural that takes place, you know. He had a lot of other things to say, but that that image is stuck in my mind. And that, that's mm-hmm. a core principle, you know, here with what we're talking about, that the Scriptures – Refer us, refer to us as being dead and blind and deaf to the things of God, unable to believe unless God does a miraculous work, you know. And so I've told people before, my sophomore year of college at Cal Baptist University, I was, I was a wreck, you know. I seriously was just jacked up because I felt like I had to go back and reconsider um, – things that I had assumed from the past. So I spent a lot of time searching the scriptures and studying. Um, and so that was quite a while ago. But, you know, these things became more and more important to me from that day onward. Um, also, in my time working on my Master's of Divinity at, at Moody, um, I had already been decided upon these things long ago. But, um, I don't know, my, my, my MDiv work really helped to solidify the importance of these things and how we need to be uh, resolved concerning these things, even if they're uh, difficult doctrines, you know. Um, but ultimately, it's this. It's it's simply uh, the Word of God, the Scriptures, that persuade me to believe this way. Um, you know, I, I do think that Calvinism, properly understood, takes into consideration all that the Scriptures have to say on the doctrine of salvation. That's the point. So John 3.16 says some very important things. I love John 3.16. It's a beautiful verse, and it's a very, very important one, a wonderful summary of the gospel. But John 6 also has some very important things to say. John 10, John 17, for example. Um, The reason I'm emphasizing texts in John is because those who oppose Calvinism typically go to John chapter 3, verse 16, and and say, look, uh, Calvinism can't be true. And, And I think it's quite powerful to illustrate from John's gospel alone how if you read all that the gospel of John has to say, you can't help but be a Calvinist. You can't help but be a Calvinist. And so ultimately, that's why I believe these things to be true. It's because I think it's an accurate understanding of of all that the scriptures have to say. Well, let alone we open the book of Romans and just (laughs) be thoroughly lambasted with these principles, right? So, I mean, it's it's all throughout. It's It's throughout. And I'm noticing that even... In the general epistles, you know, mm-hmm. um, you, you read Ephesians, you read Colossians. I mean, Ephesians, I mean, it, it's all over the place in Ephesians 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. It's all over the place oh, in yeah. Colossians 1. But even like First Peter, yeah. you, you know, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, you know, it, it, it just, it permeates the, the whole of Scripture. Right. It's Old not and just, New Testament. It's not just one obscure verse no. that we're pulling this from. I think is the principle that we should take to heart that it is yeah it's through and through it's old and 
New Testament. The right. idea that God chose one nation of Israel wasn't, I, don't, I think, a coincidence. But then we take that into the New Testament with the choosing of the elect and the sheep, the fold of God that he's right. prepared a people for himself. And yeah, well, it's, The principle of election is there with the, the choosing of the nation of Israel, but it's even there with the calling of Abraham out of a mm-hmm. pagan context. You know, right. God initiated with Abraham and called him out of that place. We could even go further back and see how there are genealogies that are established between righteous and unrighteous lines. And, um, you know, the New Testament picks up on these things. And in Romans chapter nine makes the point, Jacob, I have loved and Esau I have hated. And why does Romans nine pick up on Jacob and Esau? Because the boys are twins and also they're both kind of jacked up people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like I, Paul could have used other characters to illustrate the principle of election, but he chose Jacob and Esau because they're twins. And Jacob wasn't the best guy in the world. If you read the story, you find out he he was quite deceptive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the purpose is this: it's not a ba- and this is what Paul says: it's not based upon them and what they did. Actually, this principle of election um, it it took place before they were even born. Paul says right. before they did good or evil, mm-hmm. and um, so. We're kind of getting on with things here, but the point is, is that it, it just permeates all of Scripture. And those who have come to this view, they, they begin to read the Bible and they begin to say, how did I not see this before? How did exactly. I not see it? It's everywhere. And that's, that was my experience. You know, I mean, uh, in college, I, I had heard the word Calvinism, the term Calvinism, but I had no idea what it meant. You know, I'd, I was presented, the first time I was actually presented anything from it was... Uh, coming to work with you joe actually when we we worked at the same same place same church and um that was the first time i was really even considering any of those uh those doctrines and it was rough man it was it was really rough my wife jan and i struggled a lot with it i mean it's not an it's not a light topic it's not light at all and i'm the biggest part for us i think is just the um, election and just just wrestling through through what that implies and uh so just going back and forth, looking through scriptures that we thought um, supported what we thought was biblical in the sense of f- like free will, like what we understood to be biblical in that. And um, for some reason, there was this, this need for us to have absolute free will that we had to be able to choose. And if, and if um, that was altered at all or affected at all, that... Um, God was some puppet master or something that, mm, yeah. um, you know, and, and, but just digging through these scriptures and, and just being confronted after, you know, you just mentioned this, but reading through scriptures and being like, how did I not see this? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was the thing. It's like, we're trying to read through and, and trying to support what we had previously believed without knowing, mm-hmm. um, what we believed. Um, and then just having that, you know, bashed over the head with what scriptures, you know, yelling out at us. And, and it became this, the wrestles, the the wrestling and struggle became. Um, it turned into this incredible comfort mm. of the fact that I can't boast in anything but Christ, and how beautiful that is. That is nothing that I've done or could do, um, mm-hmm. and there's nothing horribly. There's nothing I could do. Uh, the worst thing I could do could not separate me from from Christ, and that that is huge. Like, how beautiful is that that we can mm-hmm. uh, truly say it is not me it is it is christ 
Um, and, and that's, that's, that's the huge part. And, and that goes into sovereignty and, and how, you know, you've heard the phrase, like you, you mentioned the phrase to me a long time ago, but sleep, live, sleep, like a Calvinist, right? All the things that go on <laughs> in this like world, a Calvinist last night. Yeah. <laughs> all the yeah. things that go on in this world, right? I mean, without the sovereignty of God, truly believing that God is sovereign. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I don't think I could sleep because yeah. just knowing that God is still in control and everything that's happening in the world is, is is still within the control of God is incredibly important. Well, and it goes back to what we had mentioned or, or a bit earlier, and I think we'll get into again later. But uh, it's it's a worldview issue, sure. right? So it, it's yeah. it's difficult to wrestle with. Uh, maybe when we first come to grips or be when we're exposed to this um, doctrine, but uh, it's a worldview that that needs to change. It's a paradigm shift, and so we're redefining or reconfiguring uh, maybe how we understand man and how we relate to God and uh, doctrine of sovereignty, all these things play together. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just think that a lot of us maybe come from having assumptions. We A lot of us have maybe presuppositions about how the world we, works. Yeah, and, we all do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. for sure. And um, so, you know, we don't maybe recognize or we don't understand where those assumptions come from, uh, but it's coming to a clear understanding and, and um, I guess a deeper grasp of the scriptural principles. And um, See, that's why I said earlier, though, that at the heart of this issue is the question, what will be our authority for truth? Right. You know, if the scriptures are our authority for truth, then we are obligated to believe what the scriptures teach. And I'll make this case in, in future episodes. The scriptures are abundantly clear on this point. This is not one of those doctrines where we can say, well, we can't really know for sure the Bible is unclear. I I don't buy that at all. The scriptures are abundantly clear uh, on this point. And and so this is really at the heart of the issue. What is going to be our authority for truth? And and I think that at the crux of it is this. Those who decide to make emotion their authority for truth or human unaided human reason, they'll tend towards Arminianism, you know, because Mm. – I don't know. It, it just it's easier emotionally to sure. not touch this stuff. And if we're just going off of what we perceive with our natural eyes, we're probably going to assume that salvation is determined by man. Mm-hmm. Because that's what we see. The gospels mm-hmm. preach, man responds. The gospels preach, man responds. But what are the scriptures doing here except giving us a glimpse as to what goes on in the background, behind the scenes, in the heart of man? You know, the scriptures are revealing something invisible, something supernatural that takes place in order for someone to come to salvation. We can't perceive that with our eyes. Um, it, it needs to be revealed to us and it has been revealed to us, you mm. see. So yeah, I, I think that's both of you guys uh, really well said um, in terms of, of your sharing about well, your background here. So, And you mentioned the, the emotional thing again, just want to jump back to that really quick. It's just, it, it is easier emotionally to, 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 you know, not be a Calvinist in a way. But then the flip side, like we were just talking about, is it becomes emotionally so much more uh, comforting to it's see that freeing. Yeah. Right. And we talked yeah. about last time, you know, and presenting the gospel, the idea, you know, that uh, thank God that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that changes mm-hmm. hearts and not the pressure of us to use the exact right words at the exact right moment mm-hmm. that maybe that person would have slipped away had we had we had not, you know, said a certain word or something. But that, yeah. I think emotionally it's easier in the, in the short term. Sure. There, you know, it's just yeah. easier not to press yeah, through this. Yeah. But in the long run, I, I think um, 
you know, you, you miss out on a lot that the yeah. scriptures intend to give you, that God intends to give you through his holy yeah. word by bringing these truths to bear. He brought – it's in his word. He could have not revealed this, but sure. he did. You yeah. know, he revealed it for a reason. Well, what are some mis, uh, common misconceptions that people have concerning Calvinism? Let's dive into those a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a number of them that we could um, could address. And, and I think maybe the first one, maybe the most important that people um, – people would understood is uh that well you calvinists are maybe just uh you're fatalists right you believe in just this predetermined life that everything's already set before us and why do anything right because it's already been determined by god's uh plan in your your mind um and that i i think well i mean it there is a sense in which that rings true and that yes there is god's um secret will that whatever he has prescribed to come about, God is sovereign over those things, uh, but not in a deterministic, fatalistic sense that um, we as uh, free agents of God or uh, agents, right, persons have an ability and a will to choose, right? And so you Mm -hmm. open the cupboard and you choose what you're going to eat for breakfast, right? And you Mm -hmm. make real choices every day. Uh, And and we're not saying that, I mean, God is behind all of those, but uh, it's it's a complex relationship between God's secret will and God's revealed will. Uh, and so God has definitely called us to to live according to his revealed will in the sense of his right his commandments and uh the Old Testament what he's given us to to live by uh, and in the New Testament obviously uh, loving our neighbor and loving God the summary of the law. Um but in the sense of um things being predetermined it's it's kind of a yes and a no. Which I think just some people want to overly emphasize one thing over the next. Well, yeah, the difference between biblical, um, the biblical doctrine of predestination or the sovereignty of God and blind determinism uh, is that uh, God determines all things for a purpose. That's the thing. It's, it, mm. it's towards an end goal. Uh, it's for his glory. It's for the good of his people. There, there's a reason behind it. It's not just fate, you know, just random chance or right. uh, by the luck of the draw or the roll of the dice or something like that, you know, to where there is no rhyme or reason to the things that happen to us. They just happen to us because it was in the stars, you know, that it would. I mean, that's blind determinism or fatalism there. Um, also, what fatalism or determinism tends to say is that, as you were getting at, Austin, um, yeah, I just it doesn't matter what we do. Our choices don't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And, and so the scriptures um, present a, a more complex view of these things to us. You know, is it true that God is sovereign over all things? Is it true that He has uh, predestined all things so that all that comes to pass is the result of His eternal and perfect and holy will? Yes, mm-hmm. but. The scriptures also present this truth that we make real choices. We, our choices are real so much so that we will stand before God and be judged for them someday. Mm-hmm. Rightly, yeah. rightly. And, and so, yeah, I get it. This is a difficult concept to grasp. But again, if we are going to have the scriptures as our authority for truth, then we must confess both of these things is true. Right, right. God is sovereign over all. Um, he he um, acts with complete providence over all things. Um, 
he has decreed from eternity past all things that will come to pass. And yet we make real choices every single day from the heart for which we will stand accountable. So again, we're just, we're seeking to be biblical here mm-hmm. in our understanding of, of God and the world in which we live. Right. Um, so it's not, it's not blind determinism or fatalism. All things are moving toward an end for a very specific purpose, according to the scriptures, and our choices do matter. They are real, real choices that we make every single day. It's, it's that God's sovereignty by no means takes away from our responsibility. Yeah, right? We absolutely. can't pass the buck onto God and say, oh, well, I was um, predetermined to you know neglect what I've been called to do. It's that if, if you are diligent to read and study the scriptures— you should know what God has prescribed for you uh, as his revealed will, but we should be very diligent to then follow that calling and um, mm. to ob- heed Jesus' call in our lives to um, to love our neighbor and to worship the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, uh, strength, and uh, our entire being. Yeah, I think when people hear us talk like this, God is sovereign over all things, and yet man is responsible. And they go, this is just double talk. You know, this is just craziness. How could God hold us accountable for something that he determined, you know? So ultimately, the conversation has to go down to the age-old question, do we have free will? Yeah. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier, Mike, you said uh, before um, we just had to believe that we uh, possessed absolute free will. And I'm glad you stated it that way. Mm -hmm. Because I would say I believe that we have free will. Sure. Our confession has a chapter on free will. I believe we have free will, but not in the absolute sense that you were referring to. Um, In the absolute sense, I think people view free will this way. They say, um, I have free will, which means I can do anything. Whatever I want. Whatever whatever I want. In, In other words, I am completely free to reject God, but... I am also completely free and able to pursue God and to love him and to worship him. I don't, I don't agree with that. The yeah, scriptures yep. do not teach that. The scriptures talk about our inability. But if by free will you mean that we make real choices from the heart every single day, every moment of our lives, real choices from the heart, I say absolutely we have that kind of free will. Yeah. Um, I think we should go over um, our, our, our um, confession on yeah, this point. Yeah. Honestly, chapter 9 of our confession yeah, provides right the greatest explanation of what a, a biblical notion of free will is that, that I've ever come across. And I, what, what do you guys say? Do we yeah, have time? Let's, to let's, go through let's it? do it. Yeah. It's, it's short. I yeah, think we can go through it quickly. We'll just okay. do, there's only five verses or sentences really of this little, um, we yeah, call little them paragraphs but they're hardly even paragraphs um i don't so, know mike you want to read the i don't have it in front of me yeah I pulled up there. Uh, so chapter nine um here's the first one god hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil and I've walked people through this so many times that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it by now because it, it is such a hot topic. But here is what paragraph one of chapter nine is saying, that when God created man, he created him this way, that he has the ability to choose. He's not a puppet on a string. He's not a robot, right? This is the way that God created man. He gave them the ability to choose. So this is speaking of Adam 
as he was created in the garden. And I think it also speaks to what the, the ability that we still possess even after the fall. I think it's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we have the ability to make choices, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of you want to read paragraph two? Yeah. So paragraph two, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable or changeable so that he might fall from it. Okay. So just notice and pick up on the word um, state there at the very beginning of paragraph two. Man in his state of innocency. So this is talking about Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Um, We see here in this paragraph that uh, Adam and Eve had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet they were mutable so that they might fall from it. So in this state, they, they had this ability. They could obey God from the heart. They could please God from the heart. They could pursue God from the heart. But they also had the potential to fall from that that good state that they were in, that state of innocency. So this state, I think, is well illustrated by the presence of two trees in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. You had the tree of life, and you had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they had the ability to eat from either of those trees, to either go on obeying God for all eternity, and they would have been confirmed in their righteousness if they had. They would have eaten from the tree of life, and they had the freedom uh, to to rebel and to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So just, yeah. but, but key in on the word state here, because this is the, the, the crucial thing here. Somebody read, yeah. uh, one of you read paragraph three. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So just notice that we did not lose our ability to choose. But in the state of sin, after the fall, what we lost is our ability uh, to, to choose God. That is, we lost the ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation, right? That This is what the confession is bringing out for us here. We are by nature, after the fall, averse from that good and dead in sin, and we're not able. So so we did not lose the ability to choose, but we lost the ability to choose that which was good and pleasing to God, some things that would lead us to salvation. We cannot convert ourselves. And I go back mm-hmm. to that image in my mind of that guest speaker laying flat on the table, right? Dead yeah, means dead. Yeah. yeah. Dead doesn't, means dead. Doesn't mean terminally ill. No, that's exactly the point he made. Yeah. It doesn't mean severely wounded. Right, right. doesn't mean at the brink of death, you know. Yeah. It, dead is dead, and that's the state that we find ourselves existing in. Do we make real choices as human, as human beings? Yes, but the condition of our heart is fallen, and it tends towards evil. It tends away from God. It resists the things of God. That is our natural state. We are blind, deaf, dead to the things of God. Okay, so that, that's the state that we are in. All of us are in ever since the fall. That's the state that we're born into. So paragraph four. Uh, Paragraph four, I'll take that one. So when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good 
Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he doth not perfectly, uh, nor only by, I'm sorry, nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. So some some old yeah. English yeah, here, yeah. but uh, I think off the, a the bit. points right. the points are clear. Right. Uh, if if we're looking at it, so so notice the opening line of paragraph four: when God converts a sinner. So the question is, who who is the one who controls salvation? Who is the one that that has to act? It must be God who acts. He must convert a sinner. And notice that another state of being is mentioned here. We had a state of innocency. We had a state of sin mentioned. And now uh, we see that God does convert sinners and translates them into a state of grace. And the nature of the state of grace is that we have have been freed from our natural bondage under sin. uh, to to um, will and to do that which is spiritually good. So we are freed to uh, accept the gospel. We are freed to worship God as we ought. We are freed to, to love God as we ought, to see him as good and valuable and precious, whereas once, and th- see, this is the thing that everybody has experienced in conversion, you know, especially those who have been converted in the later years of their life. They know that they went on uh, totally unconcerned for the things of God. Some people even hated God. You know, and then one day they heard the gospel and all of a sudden they said, that's appealing to me. I want that. Okay, that, that, that's, that's what we experience in life. Why? How, how does that happen? I think the confession is right to point out that this is God's saving activity. He, mm. he, he converts that person. He opens yeah. their blind eyes, unstops their deaf ears, uh, breathes life into their uh, dead souls, if, if you will. So... Um, you know, we, we, we read Jesus' words to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's what this is talking mm-hmm. about. Someone must be born again. Uh, so that's the, the fourth paragraph here. But but also, I mean, in this in this state or in this condition now of, of grace, um, I think it's important to note that we can do or will that which is spiritually good, but it also says that uh, it's not that we can't choose that which is evil still right in this state right. we we can do right. what is spiritually good but we can also uh fall into sin and temptation and i mm-hmm. think that's a really um i think relatable understanding of our christian experience right sure. that, yeah we desire god perhaps and we desire um to do that which is pleasing and holy um according to his will but we still struggle with sin yeah. and in this state in this life uh until until we experience experience glorification and uh the redemption of our bodies it's it's still a struggle right dealing paul, with those corruptions paul talks about the battle that rages between uh, flesh and, and spirit you know yeah. and he, he he um is frustrated with that you know i, I there's certain things i want to do in, in my soul in my spirit mm-hmm. and i find myself not doing those things the things i don't want to do i find myself doing you know that that's describing the battle sure. that we all experience um but that that's the state of grace i just want you to know something before we read the last paragraph um, notice the principle here. It's that, yes, we make real choices, and we do so from the heart. And it's the condition of our heart that determines what it is that we do mm-hmm. and what it is that we choose and mm-hmm. what it is that we see as precious. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's so key. And so the, the reality is this, is that we are born a certain way to we, where we suppress the things of God to borrow, you know, the language from Romans 1 and on into chapter 2, right? I mean, we, we suppress the things about We press them down. Uh, but God in his infinite mercy and grace has chosen to awaken some and to 
to, to convert and to renew the heart um, so that those whom he has called, those whom he has chosen, hear the gospel, they see him, and they say, I want that, and they do so from the heart. It's irresistible grace, not because we're drag, uh, you know, kicking and screaming. It's irresistible grace because what we're saying is that God is effective in converting those who are his, those whom he has chosen, right. so that we right. choose him from the heart. Real quick, the last paragraph, I think this is cool, so we should finish up with yeah. that one. Um, this will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. Yeah, that's beautiful. So the point is there's one more state uh, that we all can't wait to experience, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the state of glory. And it's only going to be then that we um, that we desire only that which is good. And we don't struggle with this battle between flesh and spirit anymore. And also think of this, okay, read Genesis um, chapter 1 and 2, okay? And we, we were, were given a picture of what the garden was like. And how many trees were there in the garden originally? Well, a lot of trees, but (laughs) how many uh, important trees? Two Two. specifically, right? They were noted of. Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that man in his original state, as he was created, had the ability to do good and to do evil corresponding to those trees. Go to the end of the book of Revelation. How many trees do we see emphasized there at the end of the book? Only one. Uh, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't there anymore. Only the tree of life. And I think, of course, the point is this, that um, paradise, eternal life um, with God is going to be like paradise was in the garden, but so much better. And it will be better um, for a number of reasons, but one of them being that we will not have the ability to fall anymore. Right. It's it's like the the difference between mutable and immutable right we're going to be stable right and perfectly free so, to so good I, this just came to me but check this out i think this is so cool if someone says that um the reason that god allowed the fall um or is because uh, he would never take away man's ability to have absolute free will Okay, so that's what the Arminian says, right? That, that, that the supreme principle out there um, behind God allowing the fall and allowing sin and all of that is that he would not impose himself upon man, right? Man has to be free to either choose or reject. Free will, absolute free will is like the Arminian's uh, supreme principle that they bow to, right? Um, but, but, but look at this. Do we have absolute free will in eternity? In glory. Absolutely. Well, I, the, I guess I didn't, I didn't state it very well. <laughs> you know, well, I mean... <laughs> according to the way that we view free will, we do. But what I'm saying is that according to the Arminians' view of things, we, in we eternity, yeah. we do not have the freedom to reject God. Well, and, and damage is not done to our personhood, to, 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 to us as human beings. It was... Sorry. I, it, it was a, uh, not, not a very well-stated question, I guess, the way I set it up. But the point I'm wanting you to see is that in eternity, in the future, in, in paradise, when we're with God, we will not have the ability to fall. Right. We will only have the ability to worship God, but we'll do so freely right? Well, the, from the heart. And that's the language here is perfectly free. Perfectly here. free. And that's the beauty of that. Like, perfectly it, free, even though the ability to rebel has been taken away. Right. Damage has not been done to our freedom because our ability to, to, to rebel has been taken away. Well, I, I want to jump in here because I, <laughs> I set that, you up badly. No, brother. I know but, I but I think it's 
it needs to come back to a redefinition of of some of these terms because what is freedom? And I think that's our, the point I was American, trying to make. Yeah. yeah, in our American mindset, we want to say we're free to do whatever we want. Uh, I can be free to smoke medical marijuana if I want, or I'm free to harm myself if it's doing damage to you know my body. Yeah, just me. I can I can do whatever I want. But true freedom in the sense of of I think a proper understanding uh, in in which God has created us to be free is to do that which is good. So well, true yeah, freedom is the freedom well, to do that which is good. I'm not free to rob a bank, right? right? I can be, you know, think I'm free to do it in front of one and drive 90 down the freeway, but there are consequences with that. What we're truly free to be is to to do that which is we have the freedom to do that which is good. And yeah. think about it in the sense of God, right? Is is God free to do that which is evil? Absolutely not in that sense, right? God is free in of his in and of his being uh, to be consistent with his being and to do that which is good and to be consistently holy. Mm-hmm. And so in this immutable state of, of perfection and glorification later on, we are immutable, immutably free. And I love that language, perfectly and immutably yeah. free because we can we will only desire that which is good in the same sense mm-hmm. that God has always. Because doing evil becomes slavery. Is what it is. It's mm-hmm. not freedom. It's, yeah, it's not freedom right. at all. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 yeah. the point I was trying to bring home here is, is that um, it is proper to talk about having authentic free will, even though we are unable to choose God unless He does a spiritual and regenerating work upon us. We're still making we're still making free choices before Christ works, even though we're unable. To choose God, free choices, unable to choose God, and, and the corresponding truth to that is, we we will be free only to do that which is good in eternity in paradise, and we'll be truly free even though we are unable. Again, there's there's a degree of inability there. We'll be unable to rebel against God in eternity. But but in both cases, I think um, we we are truly free because we're making choices from the heart, and that's mm-hmm. that's the only way to define free will. From a biblical perspective, free will is making real, authentic choices from the heart. It does not mean that we are absolutely free to do any possible thing. Right, right. So I, there's the difference. Absolute free will? No. The scriptures don't teach it. Hmm. But this restrained sort of freedom that, that I've described here, the freedom to make real choice from the heart, that is the biblical uh, principle that is consistent through and right. through. Right. And I, I've heard the analogy, and again, all analogies – break down at some point, but kind of going along with this idea of absolute free will and, and being able to make free, real choices, I've heard it discussed in the sense of being in a prison cell. Have you heard that before? Just being I think locked. I said it, brother, but if you want to you – Oh, know, I'm sorry. Did, uh, did, did you mention to someone else? Did you, know? you mention it today? Usually people say Piper or RC Scroll I, or something, but you know. I'm going to call dibs on this one. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but the idea of being in a prison cell, and you can choose to – lay on your bunk or sit on the floor to do push-ups or do whatever you can do within this very restrained sense of the freedom that you have. But you are not free to leave, and you cannot, in the sense of a prison, you cannot choose to open the door and to walk out as a free man, right? You're restrained. And so in the same sense, it, right. uh, we, we make real choices, and we can do with uh, our, ourselves as we maybe so pleased in this life to the degree that um, our freedom is restrained. And we, as uh, it breaks down because it's not that we're just free, but we're dead spiritually and we cannot awaken ourselves. We cannot open this 
prison door per se. Of, right. It's almost uh, more like we don't even realize there's something outside the prison cell. Yeah. 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 I don't think that was my illustration, but anyways, I that was, <laughs> it was a good one nonetheless. Um, I like it. So free will is always something that comes up. I hope, hope that was helpful. Um, London Baptist Confession, Chapter 9, I think is very helpful. Another misconception that people have is that, well, Calvinists don't think there's any need for evangelism or missions or prayer. I, this just, to be honest, really irks me uh, when I hear this. It's uh, like, I, I like to first chime in that, that uh, recognizing the fact that Calvin's church was actually one of the first to send missionaries to Brazil. So Calvin, right. Calvin himself, in a very missional sense, sent uh people to uh, yeah. the ends of the earth well right, also just the gospel l- look at the great missionaries throughout mm-hmm. church history a lot of them are, are calvinists you know a lot of them are calvinists how um, else could it, you subject yourself to this right i've heard it said without... that, that it's the calvinist missionaries who seem to have, have had the ability to go into very difficult places and to minister for years and years and years and see only one convert and still continue on i, I think yeah. it's because they have this real sense of um uh, the sovereignty of God that, you know, they're there to be servants and yeah. salvation is the Lord's work and they'll do it faithfully until the end. So, um, you know, this is just nonsense. Uh, what we believe is this, is that, yes, it is true. Uh, God has predestined some for salvation. Uh, yes, it is true that he will effectively bring those people to salvation. But it's also true that he will do it through the means of evangelism and, and through the means of missions and through the means of prayer. Uh, these are the things that God uses to bring about his desired ends. And so the reality is if we don't preach the gospel, people aren't going to be saved. Right. And how the two fit yeah. together is a mystery to me, but all I know is that if God has determined to save certain people in this valley, then he is also determined to send certain people to this valley to proclaim the gospel. The two are going to meet. They're going to connect. You know, Paul uses this language in, in the book of Acts. Um, he, he talks about going to a certain city um, w- w- so that all the elect might be saved in that city. You know, it's just, it's just the, the way he thought that he was going to go from city to city. He was going to preach the gospel. And guess who was going to come? The elect. The elect yeah. were going to respond to the preaching of the gospel. The two go hand in glove. When I love Romans 10 on this on this very same topic that uh, Romans 10 13 says for everyone who calls on the name will be saved name of the lord will be saved how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching uh so it's very much the means that god uses if if we don't as christians go to the ends of the world or go to um, our neighbors and our co-workers and tell them of what god's done in uh in his plan of salvation and in our lives and um, yeah, we don't spread this gospel message, then that's the means by which he uses to call people to himself. And so the the gospel, the word of God is very powerful in that. And, and if we, you know, in, in the very narrow Arminian maybe sense of what they think uh, we believe, if we were to just sit on our butts and not do anything, I think that would be disobedient to the word of God. Uh, and it would be neglecting our call to preach the word mm-hmm. and to use that means by which God calls his sheep to himself. Right. You use the word power. Romans one sixteen. for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the same Apostle Paul who teaches the doctrine of predestination 
in Romans 8, for example, in Romans 9, um, also has this view that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is a thing that God uses to um, bring the elect to to salvation. And, and so it's just a stereotype, to be honest, honest with you. I'm sure there have been some hyper-Calvinists, that's what we call them, who have uh, distorted the scriptures and who have so emphasized predestination that they have minimized the need to evangelize. They're, they're, they're an error. It's a terrible... Uh, mishandling of scripture mm-hmm. and we must confess that but I, we need to bring this to a conclusion I know um, the question I think that ultimately needs to be asked is who is it that determines or controls salvation Right. who, right. who determines or controls salvation it's so important for us to re- recognize that it is God alone that yeah. controls that yeah. I, I've heard a lot of yeah discussion on this topic. I've read a lot of books, and to me, that's the question that tends to get at the heart of it. Who determines or controls salvation? And our answer to that is going to be, it is God who determines and controls salvation. Does man respond in authentic faith? Yes. Does man play a part? Uh, Yes. Uh, Does man have a job to do? Do we make real choice? Yes, yes, yes. But if we get down to it, what we see the scriptures teaching is that uh, these things come about by the will of God, and he is He is God. We respond to God. It is not that God is up in heaven responding to us. And right. I think in the moment we realize that, we're on the right track. Right. God is God, we are man, and we need to keep things in their proper place. So I think we need to wrap this up. And, I think that's um, a great place to end cool. this yeah. episode. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And we, uh, I don't know, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you guys. I'm really looking forward to diving into more. Um, and obviously by the, by the length of this episode alone, you can see why we're going to need to talk about this for a while, but it's so important and, um, such an edifying thing to go through and walk through and work through. So, um, let's wrestle with it. So, um, we hope you guys tune in next time to confessing the faith. Thanks. Thanks.